Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Pastor L has asked me and Zach, as we fill the pulpit this academic year, to do our own series. And so when I fill the pulpit this year, we're going to be looking together at Genesis 1 through 3, and this is going to be a series on origins. We're going to consider the origin of life and order, the origin of humanity. We're going to consider the origin of the Sabbath and of work and of marriage. We're going to consider the origin of sin and shame and redemption. But today, we're going to begin at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to consider the origin of everything. The origin of everything. Every culture, ancient and modern, has some sort of origin story. In fact, every person has their own individual origin story. Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, says that your story was being told before you were born. And so we come into the world looking for someone who's looking for us, for someone who's telling our story. And we are narrative creatures. We make meaning by telling stories. And so we are looking for a story that's beyond ourselves, a story that's bigger than ours, a story that we can belong to. Because deep down, we know that that story somehow shapes our meaning. It shapes our purpose. It shapes our destiny. It shapes our identity. And it tells us who we are. I love superhero stories, Marvel movies, but I discovered recently that I don't really care for the sequels that much. I prefer the first story, right? Do y'all recognize, like, that this is something that I really, I don't like the sequels. And I realized recently why that is. It's because the first story, the origin story, tells you about the character of that hero by telling you where they came from and how they began. So today, as we come to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, and think about the origin of everything, we're going to look at this under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider in verse 1, creation. And in verse 2, we're going to consider chaos. And then in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at the character of our Creator. So creation, chaos, and the character of of our Creator. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Your God, who created everything out of nothing, is preparing a place for you. Your God, who created everything out of nothing, is preparing a place for you. Let's focus our attention then on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word, beginning with Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. What has been read is true, and it's beautiful, 
and it's written in love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we think about our origin story, the origin of everything, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of the gospel, the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So, first of all, let's consider creation. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some theologians have used this to argue that God loves baseball, right? Because when your team scores a lot of runs when they're in bat, at bat, that's called what? That's called a big inning, right? Like what Dad joke, sorry. It's what like uh, the Ole Miss had in the College World Series this year. Well, that's not what Moses means here by beginning. He means starting point. Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of, uh, it's the starting point of everything. It's the origin of everything. You see, the phrase, the heavens and the earth, is a figure of speech, and that figure of speech is called a merism. And a merism is when two opposites are joined together by and to signify everything in between. And if you've been to a wedding, you've heard merisms in the wedding vows, most probably, where one uh, spouse got up and said to the other spouse that they would love them, what? For better and worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. And that didn't just mean that they were going to love them at their healthiest, and they were going to love them at their sickest, right? No, it meant that they were going to love them all the time. And so when the text says that God created the heavens and the earth, the text is saying that God created everything. This is the beginning of everything. This is the beginning of all beginnings. It's the beginning of time and matter and the universe. It's the beginning of humanity and history. One commentator says that these seven words, and there are only seven words in Hebrew, are the foundation of all that is to follow in the Bible. They're foundational to the Christian faith. How does the Apostles' Creed begin? I believe in God the Father Almighty, what? Maker of heaven and earth. But this isn't just foundational to the Christian faith. Origin stories are foundational to any faith, and everyone has faith. Everyone has a set of beliefs that governs their actions in the world. Believers have faith, but if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you have faith too. You see, essentially, there are two kinds of origin stories. There are origin stories with God, and there are origin stories without God. Either you believe in a creator or you believe in naturalism or materialism. Either you believe in intention and design or you believe in chance. And your origin story sets the trajectory for your life. 
It has an impact on what you value and how you think about the world. If you believe in a creator, then you're going to live in accord with his design, with his intention. But if you believe in materialism and natural selection, if we just climbed out of the primordial ooze, then it's hard to get to morality. It's hard to get to meaning. And life degenerates to a grab for power. It's the survival of the fittest. And it leads to oppression, where people with the power make the rules. But the origin story without God requires faith. There's now a famous metaphor that says a living organism emerging by chance from a prebiotic soup is about as likely as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard assembling a Boeing 747 from the scraps. You see, chance is just another way of saying miracle, and that requires faith. But Christianity requires faith too. Christianity is built on this origin story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's not just taught here. This is the comprehensive witness throughout the Scriptures. So Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Isaiah 40.28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 32.17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is You who made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched stretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. John 1.3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Acts 17.24, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's the comprehensive witness of Scripture that God created all things. The Westminster Confession of Faith are standards written in 1646 by the Westminster Divines summarize the doctrine of creation like this. Can I get that slide, Andre? It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. 
historic Christian orthodoxy teaches at least four things about creation. First, it teaches that creation is the beginning of time and matter and the universe. In other words, there is a time where time was not, right? And in creation, God created time. He created this succession of moments. And there was a time when matter was not. Even science believes this. Either matter is eternal or it had a beginning. So you have the Big Bang and the second law of thermodynamics. But in creation, God creates matter. And there was a time when the universe was not. And in creation, God creates the universe. But secondly, historic historic Christian orthodoxy also teaches that creation is ex nihilo. That is, it's out of nothing. In other words, God created time and matter and the universe out of nothing. So before God began to create, there was nothing else in the world, in the universe, other than God. And He created everything out of nothing. Thirdly, creation is a free act. That is, God wasn't required to create. God is self-sufficient and not dependent on His creatures or His creation in any way. This was something that He did freely. And fourthly, creation is distinct from and dependent on God. Creation is not God. It's distinct from God, but it's also eternally dependent upon God. As long as creation is, it's upheld by the word of His power, God's ongoing act of providence. Well, so what? So what? What what, what does that mean at 7.30 tomorrow morning when you're driving to work or when you sit down at lunch this afternoon? Well, first of all, it rules out materialism. There is more than matter to this universe. It rules out pantheism. God is not matter. It rules out dualism because God is not co-eternal with matter. But perhaps most importantly and more personally, the fact that creation was a free act of God means that God wanted everything that He created. That when He created, He created out of an act of His will. And it means that everything in creation had a design, it had a function, it had a purpose. You see, in a world of chance, life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. But with a Creator, life has meaning. And you have a purpose. And that's a huge paradigm shift. And remembering that can shape how you drive to work tomorrow. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, verse 1 appears to be a summary statement or a title for what follows in the rest of Genesis 1. This is the big picture, the headline. And now, Moses is going to narrow and focus on the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts. And if you look down at Genesis 2 and verse 1, it seems to close out this section. 
Thus, the heavens and the earth, there's that merism again, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And so the book ends in 1-1 and 2-1 surround the creation of the heavens and the earth. So let's begin at the beginning state of where God begins to create. And let's look at chaos, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the raw state of God's creating. This is the beginning stage of God's beginning work. The earth is without form and void. That means it's formless and empty. And this is a picture of barrenness and chaos. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. There's no function. There's no order. And the main thrust of Genesis 1 is producing life. But this space, as God begins to create, is lifeless. But there's more. There's darkness and the deep or the abyss and the waters. And these were terrors in the ancient Near East. They're often portrayed as other gods. They brought death. They were signs of destruction. And when you take these all together without form and void, darkness and the deep and the waters, this is a picture of ultimate chaos. But here's the point. Chaos is still a part of God's creation. You see, God's going to form the formlessness and fill the emptiness and shine light in the darkness and separate dry land out of the waters. But the chaos here at the beginning, it doesn't threaten God. It's not His rival. It's not outside His sovereignty. That chaos, that ultimate chaos, is still a part of creation. And that truth is designed to provide you a sense of safety and security in the face of chaos. You see, this lightless, landless, lifeless, unordered, unfilled state is still under God's control. That chaos is still a part of His creation. And so that chaos that you face, and we face chaos in so many ways, that chaos is not outside God's sovereign reign as king. He created the chaos, and He will bring order to the chaos. And you image Him when you bring order to chaos, because we are order-making creatures, because God is an order-making God. We are meaning-making creatures because God is a meaning-making God. And that's all baked in right here in Genesis chapter 1, the origin of everything. Now, I want to call your attention to the first word in verse 2. It's translated Eretz. Well, it's not translated Eretz because that's actually the Hebrew. Eretz is the Hebrew. It's translated earth here. Eretz is pronounced kind of like ferrets, uh, but without the F there. And in order to think about this correctly, we need to talk about hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the art 
or science of interpreting text. Now stay with me here because this is important. It's the art or science of interpreting text. And we're going to try to get to the original meaning. That is, what did this text mean when the original author wrote this document to his original audience? Now I take the original author of the Torah to be Jesus, to, to be Moses, and I think I'm in pretty good company here because that's also what Jesus attributes the bulk of the Torah to. He attributes it to Moses. And I think the best guess for the original audience would be the second generation Israelites on the plains of Moab about to enter the promised land. So Moses here at the end of his life, after the first generation of Israelites has died off in the wilderness, as they're looking into the promised land, as they're standing on the banks of the Jordan in order to convince Israel to believe the promises of God precisely where their parents had failed, and to take the land to cross the Jordan and to enter into the land, Moses preaches a sermon, and that sermon is the book of Deuteronomy. And he writes the Torah, and he gives these to Israel to encourage them where your parents failed to believe the promises of God. I want you to enter into the land and to take, uh, to take what God is giving you. And so that first word in verse 2 is Eretz. It's Eretz. And Eretz uh, is used in three different ways in the prologue. It can be used to signify the cosmos, one commentator says, when the compound phrase is put together with heaven. It can also be used to signify dry land as it's used in 110. But it can also be used to signify the whole planet. And when the context shows that Eretz is used to signify the whole planet, it's translated earth. And so Eretz in, in Genesis 1 through 11 occurs 96 times. And it's used to talk about the creation and the flood and the table of nations and the Tower of Babel. And it's usually talking about the whole planet. And so it's usually translated in Genesis 1 through 11, earth. But starting in Genesis 12, there's a shift. And from here on out in the rest of the Old Testament, Eretz is almost universally translated land. In Genesis, the rest of Genesis, Eretz occurs 215 times. It occurs 849 times in the Torah and 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's translated land. Now, why does land occur so frequently in the Old Testament? Because it's central to God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 7, God appears to Abraham and he says, to your seed, I will give this land. And the rest of the Old Testament is about Israel's relationship with the land. They're promised the land. They take the land. They dwell in the land. There's a king in the land, and then they're exiled from the land. And the word is Eretz. 
And it's the same word that's used here in Genesis 1, verse 2. One commentator says that when we translate Eretz, earth, in verse 2, the English translations have blurred the connection of these early verses of Genesis to the central theme of land in the Old Testament. But if you were an Israelite, and you were about to enter the promised land, if you were standing on the banks of Jordan, you would read Eretz, and you would understand contextually that it was talking about the whole planet. But you would also hear the connection to land. You would hear the echoes of the language of promise. You would hear the allusions to the covenant. You'd see the connection between what God creates at the beginning and what's on the other side of the Jordan. They're both Eretz. They're both land. And here, in verse 2, that Eretz is uninhabitable, and it's full of chaos. And that's exactly how the Eretz would have felt to Israelites on the other side of the Jordan as they're looking into the land, right? And Moses is saying, fear not, O my friends. God is preparing a place for you. God is preparing a place for you. I know the land looks uninhabitable. I know that it looks like it's full of chaos. The Canaanites are there in the land, but God has done it before. He's prepared a place for you before. The chaos is not outside of His control, and He's going to do it again. God's going to form the formlessness and fill the emptiness and shine light in the darkness and separate dry land out of the waters. God is going to bring forth life in the land. The chaos that's in the land is still under God's control. It's still a part of His creation. God is preparing a place for you on the other side of the Jordan. Nothing is beyond his outstretched hand. And how is God going to prepare the land? There's a hint there at the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now today, with full disclosure of later revelation in the New Testament, we can look back and understand that the Spirit of God refers to the Holy Spirit, and creation is a Trinitarian act. But to the original audience, with their emphasis in the Torah on monotheism, on the fact that there is one God, they would have understood the Spirit of God as an extension of God, something akin to the hand of God or the mighty arm of the Lord. But I want you to notice here how the Spirit of God is behaving. The Spirit of God is hovering, is the verb here in the text, over the face of the waters. And Moses is talking here about how God cares for creation. The only other time that this word is used in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God is talking about His care for Israel in the wilderness. And it says this, "...like an eagle that stirs up its nest, 
that flutters over its young, and that's the word flutters, is hovering, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. And so this word hovering is a picture of a mother bird nurturing and protecting its young. We have barn swallows at our house, and every year, every spring, they come back. And one of my favorite days of the spring is when you see that first bald, closed-eyed head kind of poking over the edge of the nest, and then inevitably you see the mom come flutter in, right, and bring food, and then go away, and then dad flutters in and brings food, and then at night they settle down and kind of nestle together for protection and warmth. And Moses is saying, that's a picture of the Spirit of God as he's preparing to bring order to the chaos. It's a picture of tenderness and intimacy, a picture of closeness and care, a picture of provision and vigilance, and it's designed to make you feel safe and secure, even in the presence of chaos. It tells you something about who your God is, Yes, he's sovereign. He's in complete control, but he's not distant. He's not far off. He's drawn near. The Spirit of God hovers over his creation like a mother eagle flutters over her young. That's the nature of your God. That leads us then into our third point, the character of our Creator, the character of our Creator. As we come to this origin story, this origin of everything, we bring to it all of our modern questions. How old is the the earth, right? What about evolution? How does this fit with science? What about the Big Bang? Does it teach the gap theory? When were the angels created? But Moses isn't writing to answer your modern questions. He's writing to introduce you to the one true God. Moses uses a form that's common for his day, right? This origin story is an ancient pattern for the way origins were told among the people of the Near East. And you find similar accounts in Mesopotamia and Babylon and Egypt, accounts that Moses would have likely been taught growing up in the Pharaoh's court. And so he takes this form of story that's used in that world, But he also uses the cosmogony of the day, that is, their understanding of the structure of the universe. Now, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have said, hey, look, y'all, the earth is actually round, and it rotates around the sun, right? But this isn't a scientific text. That's not the point of what Moses is saying here. God, through Moses accommodates to his audience, not only using language they would understand, but also by using a recognizable story form. And Moses uses the familiarity to make the contrast all the more shocking. He uses familiarity to make the contrast all the more shocking. Imagine being in first grade, 
Did you have a lunchbox in first grade? I think mine was a 3D version of all of the helmets of the NFL teams. And imagine that every day your mom packs you the same lunch. It's peanut butter and honey and cucumbers and carrots and Oreos. And so day after day, you go into the cafeteria with your helmeted lunchbox, right? And you open it up, and it's the same meal every day. And then on the last day of school, your mom packed a, a lunch, maybe from a restaurant that was recently acknowledged to be in the top 50 by the New York Times in the nation, maybe a restaurant like Elvie's, right? And all of a sudden, instead of peanut butter and honey and carrots and cucumbers and Oreos, you have this amazing meal. Do you think you'd notice the difference? Right? It's the same lunchbox, but different contents. And the familiarity makes the contrast all the more shocking. Well, all of these other ancient Near Eastern origin stories out there begin with a host of gods, and they explain where those gods came from, how those gods came to be. J just one example. In Egypt, Amon-Re, the sun god, was the primary deity, and his beginning is described like this. He came into, be into being at the beginning. He had no mother or father, but he built his own egg and created his own beauty. He began himself, right? They're trying to explain how this god came to be, and against that backdrop, Moses simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the Genesis account is a polemic against all other ancient Near Eastern accounts. Moses is saying, our God is different. Our God is eternal. He has no beginning and therefore no end. You see, the one true God doesn't have an origin story. He simply is and always has been. He existed before the beginning. He existed before time, before matter, before history, and he, he will exist after. Our God, Moses can write in Psalm 90, is from everlasting to everlasting. Our God is prior to and separate from the material world. And in the Genesis account, there are no other gods. But in other ancient Near Eastern stories, the sea is a god, the sun is a god, the moon is a god, but not here. There's only one god, which means there's no battles or bedrooms in this creation story. Moses is telling you what Isaiah is telling you in Isaiah 45 and verse 18. Can I get that next slide? Andre, for thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see, in the creation account, Moses is telling you that God alone is God. And as Moses introduces Israel to the one true God in this origin of everything, 
he's saying to them, he's saying the same God who delivered you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, the same God who provided for you in the wilderness, the same God who is giving you the promised land, that God created everything out of nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power. That's the character of your God. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's good. And if that's the character of your God, then isn't He worthy of your worship? Isn't He worthy of your trust? Isn't He worthy of your obedience? Now, the beginning of the story anticipates and implies that that story will one day end. You see, everything that has a beginning has an end. And the fact that our origin of everything begins within the beginning anticipates a consummation of history at the end of time. And the vision and the scripture of the end times is that the last things will be like the first things. Which is why in Revelation 21, as Zach read this morning, uh, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's that merism again, heaven and earth, but he's seeing a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And oh, brothers and sisters, do you know why we have that hope? Do you know why we have the beautiful hope of the new heavens and the new earth? Do you remember what God the Son tells His disciples in John chapter 14? As he's facing the cross, he says to them, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. And at the end of the story, in Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And Jesus' very last words are, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So wherever you are in your story, whatever chaos comes your way, you can rest knowing that your story isn't over yet. Your God, who created everything out of nothing, is preparing a place for you. That's the origin of everything and an introduction to the one true God. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would our hearts be full of joy and hope, knowing that as you created everything out of nothing, that you have a design 
and a purpose for our lives, and that one day you will finally take us home in the new heavens and the new earth, the place that you are preparing for us even now. Fill our hearts with joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.